You know, because that's the other thing. When you say autonomous vehicles, you're not just talking about moving you and me around. We're talking about packages, the first and last mile for public transport. You know, there's just so many opportunities here. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 332. Today is Sunday, the 16th of June, 2019. And this interview is with Dr. Mark Rosekind. Mark is the Chief Safety Officer at Zooks, developing the first ground-up, fully autonomous vehicle fleet and the supporting ecosystem required to bring this technology to market. Mark started out his life as a famous sleep researcher at Stanford University. And we met when he was a fellow at Yale teaching my first ever course on sleep. He then worked on sleep and fatigue at NASA, was a president appointed board member at the National Transportation Safety Board in the US before becoming the top dog at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. In this chat with Mark, we talk about the importance of sleep, its academic evolution, and his experience and learnings in the various functions he's held over his hugely fascinating career. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. Professor Rosekind, I didn't think I'd be saying those words to the same person 30 years later, but you and I met at Yale. You were this uh, mind-blowing experience, wonderful teacher, uh, and uh, you, there I was, being awake, learning about sleep. Who would have thought? And it really was a fundamental piece of my life. I want to tell you just before you you speak, how important what you did was for me. Because when I was studying at Yale, generally speaking, people always want to study, university, you want to study and get good grades, and so you study what you're good at. But you were part of teaching me what I didn't know. And, and And so I studied women's studies and sleep. And like I always say, well, I studied the only two things I really had no clue about. (laughs) <laughs> and, and that was the journey you set me on. So, Mark, in your own words, describe who you are. First, that's very gracious of you to say. And as you know, anybody worth their salt who teaches in any environment does that to make a difference. And so I will just say, you know, 30 years later, thank you for that. You've made my year. I've been speaking about you every so, year, so hopefully I can continue. Yes, and and my perception actually over a very long career is that I consider myself a scientist focused on sleep and human fatigue, a uh, public servant, having actually served in the federal government in the United States, um, as well as a safety professional, where my focus really has been on trying to help people improve uh, safety and health in their lives. I mean, there are comp- and, and now you're an entrepreneur. So there can't be that many people who have been a professor, a scientist, work for the government, run an agency, and now be a startupper. It's a pretty interesting journey, that's for sure. Uh, and certainly as you get further along, the more you use uh, all of the skills and experiences from that life to uh, try and be successful. Yeah. So let, tell us how you got into sleep. Because, I mean, let's say for me, when I had sleep on my my transcript 
at those days, I think it's fair to say people were pretty much laughing or at least snickering uh, at me. How did you get into sleep? At that time, it really was uh, the land of, of very few. So just for context, I met you for a, a course at Yale called Sleep Dreams and Health. It was the first and only time that was actually taught. And I was a graduate student, which is to say that I had actually started in sleep as an undergraduate at Stanford University and had the great fortune to take a course there called Sleep and Dreams. And it was taught by a guy named William C. DeMent, MD, PhD. And Professor DeMent is the man who was on the team that discovered REM. And he, in fact, is the guy who helped coin the term REM sleep. So he did that at the University of Chicago, came to Stanford and started the first sleep clinic, uh, the first laboratory. Uh, he has gone on to really be the father of sleep medicine, um, but was really unique in the sense that he taught an undergraduate course that not only educated undergraduates about this new emerging field in the 70s, but there was an opportunity for undergraduates to eventually become teaching assistants in the class and actually research assistants on projects. And so I started literally as a sophomore at Stanford in the same position you were going, no one's going to believe I took this class, but he was an amazing professor that clearly changed my life. Yeah, as you, as you turn them a V, he was the VVFSR, the very famous sleep researcher. So when, when we were studying at the time, we were really at the dawn of, of sleep as a science and 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 there was a lot of you know unproven stuff, including why do we sleep, and uh, for adults and and we used to make assumptions that I remember one being well the the internal clock is twenty four point eight hours long, based on that study with the caves and since then they've modified it. What other big things would you say have changed from what we're in those first premises of understanding sleep to today? And and what, what would you characterize? How would you characterize the biggest evolutions in our understanding of sleep since those early days? So I think probably what's been most fascinating is that some of the core things that even I learned as an undergraduate that were in the course that you took have remained. So a lot of the basics about we all need sleep and there are going to be significant outcomes if you don't get sufficient sleep, there are sleep disorders, there's an internal clock. A lot of that has remained the same. What has really changed, I two big areas. One is the technology that has really advanced the methodology. So now we're looking at genomics and, um, you know, lab-based kinds of things, literally identifying the gene structure in narcolepsy, a sleep disorder that we, we could describe and treat, but now we actually have genetic markers for that sort of thing. So the methodologies have changed that tremendously to the point where I would say on the medical side, we have a much better sense of what's created these problems though I would say the challenge remains is coming up with equally sophisticated treatments for many of these issues. Mm. And then the second thing I would just say is, while we can make general statements, which I did 30 years ago, lose sleep and pretty much every aspect of human capability is degraded or impaired, now we've got 30 years of studies that show that. Mm -hmm. Whether you're a software coder or in a transportation operation, you know we're getting more and more studies that clearly validate how much impairment can come with sleep. Loss. Yeah, so that was intuitive at some level, and we all knew it, but there, now we have the data. So, what, so I've just written a book about empathy, and and sometimes people then say, "Well, you've written the the book about a book about empathy. You must know a lot about it. You must be a total empathic person." Now, switching the tables to sleep, 
you have studied sleep, you've taught sleep, you've done it in all which ways. Do you sometimes feel like, well, do you ever sleep badly? I mean, you having been worked for the government, nominated by the president, dealing with congressional hearings and all sorts of stressful situations. How well do you sleep? And, and do you ever feel like you're the cobbler badly short-shoed? So I am pretty good about getting my seven and a half hours sleep. But every human has bad nights. And what's interesting about your question is, you know, especially during my NASA years, etc., uh, you know, I really talked about jet lag and time travel, you know, all the things that and it was interesting because I always said, you know, I can't really show up and talk about how to manage jet lag and then complain about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I really do focus on, you know, absolutely applying what I know. Um, and I would just say, actually, my household, uh, little known, but I do mention this publicly, but actually met my wife doing a waterbed study at the Stanford <laughs> Sleep Center. As she was actually doing sleep work before I was, um, and she's now a pediatrician. And I would just say our household is very focused on sufficient sleep. Our kids grew up getting, you know, what they needed, etc. But everyone's got a bad night. The good news is I know to acknowledge that mm -hmm. and that I should do something during the day and don't pretend like I'm going to just be fine. Hmm. So things like uh, medications, uh, they've obviously evolved, but they feel like such a crutch as opposed to trying to figure out the systemic problem that's causing the stress and the, and the, you know, the worrying mind or you know, forgetting the other types of bigger pathologies, but the ones of, you know, the typical sleep deprivation that so many people are suffering from that you hear about anyway, caused by life's, you know, the way stuff happens. So, you know, you, you like everybody, you have to have difficulties and you have to have stresses and and it's just dealing with those. How much is mindfulness a part of the, the, the right solution? It's a huge part. And that's another example back to your question where in the early days, sleep medications, the sleeping pills were primarily a hammer. And they still are. They've gotten, again, advanced. They're a little bit better, but they're still a hammer. They don't go to the causes. And so to your point, not just mindfulness, but controlling your sleep environment, having good relaxation skills, um, making sure that you're not worrying in bed. You know, in other words, all of those things in a, a collection of tools that are called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia has been demonstrated to be as effective or more effective than sleeping medications. Now, sometimes using the two together can be helpful if you need that hammer just to kind of break into good sleep. But if you're looking at a lifelong, you know, having to deal with sleep like everybody occasionally having bad nights, whether it's traveling or stressful situations, then those cognitive behavioral techniques dealing with your mind as well as physiologically with relaxation, etc., those are absolutely the most effective way to go for long-term good sleep. So uh, in all of my writings, Mark, I, I regularly talk about ESP, and it's not extracentral perception. It's um, empathy, sleep, and purpose. And I've, I, I term them as the three most untapped levers of productivity in work. And yet, we still don't talk about sleep at work. Well, we talk about, you know, I feel shitty, but we don't talk about sleep at work. A few of us put occasionally the pods in, whatever. But we don't teach sleep. Is there any belief or hope that we'll be able to put sleep into the curriculum as a standard, much like we talk about sex? 
I mean, yeah, there, there's no question. In fact, I think since you told your story, I'll just tell you when I was an undergraduate taking sleep and dreams, the two most popular undergraduate courses at Stanford were human sexuality and sleep and dreams. <laughs> and 80% of undergraduates graduated with those on their transcripts. Hmm. To your point, what else is there being an undergraduate? If you can't handle those two topics, right? Well, I mean, I could do drugs and rock and roll, but you know. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of comes when you're satisfied with the other. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm totally with you there. And I, I think, you know, what's, if you study sleep, what becomes absolutely clear, it is foundational to who we are as a human. And yet, and so, it's so obvious, but why aren't we getting it at the right level? I mean, we got Arianna Huffington, who's done a great job of banalizing it, and then we got the latest book on why we sleep. There, there are, so are, we're, but what about in the curriculum? Is there a conversation happening in Washington about putting sleep into the curriculum? No, and there should be. You know, the closest it gets has to do with the start time of schools, yeah. uh, which, again, the data now are overwhelming. You know, when we're sleep depriving the kids, they're absent. They don't do as well on tests. They don't do as well athletically and on and on and on. Um, and, and so I think, again, this is where the data have become so clear. It doesn't matter what you look at. If you're not getting sufficient sleep or you're disrupting that internal circadian clock, we are paying for that. And again, to your point, um, it's interesting because I see this in driving. Everybody's a great driver, mm -hmm. you know. And so it's like, oh, sleep, I can do without it every once in a while. I'm fine. And the reality is we're not. So we, I think we, I was saying we, we need a minister of sleep. And I'd like to petition for min, Minister Rosekind. Um, I would take that job. <laughs> so I want to <laughs> get into your, your second uh, activity after teaching sleep. Well, what I consider is when, you, when you're working the National Tra Travel and S Transport and Safety Board. So you are appointed by the president. You, this all of a sudden, you, you, this changes completely your sphere of, of, of interest. You're working in politics almost. Tell us about that experience and what it was like going through the congressional hearing. That was a fascinating experience. You know, I, I, trained as a scientist, what do I know about that? And I'm a third generation San Francisco, so Washington is thousands of miles away. But it was an opportunity to serve. And I'd worked with the NTSB when I was a NASA scientist, helped them actually look at fatigue and sleep and some of their crash investigations and actually helped them identify fatigue for the very first time when they identified fatigue as the probable cause of a major aviation crash that happened in Guantanamo Bay many years ago, mid nineties. And so I'd worked with them, but to your point, it was fascinating all of a sudden to be in Washington with a much, so large as the platform it's not just the United States, but the NTSB interacts with the entire world of how to make transportation safer. And it's not just one mode, it's all modes. Mm. And so it was just a great experience to really elevate sleep and fatigue issues to the level of the NTSB so that in every crash investigation, that part of being human was evaluated to see whether it played a role or not. I mean, we're, we're used to hearing about alcohol and doing that sort of a drug test, but we need to have like a sleep test. And that's what we did. What we don't have a sleep test, and I always complain we don't have a fatigalizer, <laughs> like we have a. We don't have that, um, but there are ways you can look at it, and that was one of the things that we did was ensure that fatigue kinds of questions and issues were integrated into the standard parts of an investigation. So, and we did that um, pretty successfully. So if you look at the 
Oh, well, I mean, between train drivers, pilots, and cars, there's different levels of expertise required. I would typically imagine a pilot of an airplane having the higher level. And then you have a pilot of a, a NASA spacecraft, let's say. I suppose that's the end of the spectrum in my little world. But are there differences in the way you should manage sleep? And how much is sleep uh, the cause of an accident? Because it's sometimes you might have two compounding factors, bad weather and poor sleep, which was the one that really created the accident and, and talk us through that kind of you know maze so why that's such an interesting question is one of the things um uh with a guy in our safety recommendations office at ntsb before i left we actually looked at 12 years worth of crash investigations and looked to see how often did fatigue show up as the probable cause as a contributing factor um, but somewhere in the investigation so over the 12 years, I think there were 80-something um, different investigations that got looked at. And what's interesting is 20% of them, one out of five, had fatigue in some role in that crash. So it might have been causal, might have contributed, might have been a finding somewhere, but one out of five had some element of sleep, circadian disruption, sleep disorders, somewhere in there that was in a crash. And so what's important to your question is, it actually doesn't matter whether you're an individual driving your own car or piloting a, a military or a commercial aviation, right? That 20% of the time when there's a crash, fatigue's gonna play some role. Hmm. And again, this gets to the point where if you're not paying attention to this, we all pay a price, not just you and your car, but our entire society, we pay a price for those crashes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to mention fatigue in general. <laughs> you know, The irritability, the lack of empathy and all that other stuff. That's right. Again, the bottom line, you know, you don't sleep or you disrupt the clock. Every aspect of who you are as a human, every capability is degraded or impaired because of that sleep loss. All right. So then after the NTSB, you, you go on to the NIT. You give us a little bit more about what that was and, and what your role was there. Yeah, that was a very interesting transition because the NTSB, which... Um, to your point, is a Senate-confirmed position, so it's fairly high level within the government. Um, but it's an independent agency. And so you do report to the as much a part of the administration because you're supposed to operate independently. Uh, I then moved from NTSB to NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which within the Department of Transportation is the agency focused on car safety regulation and enforcement. And that is very much tied to the administration. So it's in a large DOT with 55,000 people and huge budgets, et cetera, run by a secretary, et cetera. Um, and it was fascinating there because then I went in when there were some pretty significant safety issues going on related to a GM ignition problem. Um, we're the ones who actually triggered the Takata airbag recall, which is the largest recall in U.S. history, um, which, not which, just which, auto. Which, which created a huge geopolitical situation, you know, scandal. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. Um, and, and we knew it was going to go on for years and still is just trying to replace the airbags, etc. So there were a couple of very significant safety issues, which my uh, both science background and NTSB, the investigation side of looking at these things, were pretty valuable in moving to NHTSA, which, again, 
appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate. It's a pretty high-level position where you really get to look at safety, regulating it, enforcing it, and given what we're talking about, an opportunity to also make sure sleep and fatigue stuff moved into the driving issues. Because, again, it's not just about speeding and drunk driving, but we actually went from three Ds, drunk, drugged, or uh, distracted, to include drowsy. So there were four Ds. Love it. Found that D. Well, I I, I can just imagine, you know, sometimes you'd be in this meeting and and you're like, oh, I want to watch, I want to sleep, I want to sleep. <laughs> like, no, not again. Um, right, but on top of this, the period in which you're doing this includes the the great the 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 the, the big depression we had, or the the great recession, and and uh, and the tremendous challenges that that the big three automobile industry was in, and and the subsidies that they received and not. And I would believe, I have to imagine that there was pressure on you to, to help them get through it as opposed to squash them and tell them you've got to get these things off the road. Or, or, or you know, you, you could be seen as a constraining force. Was that not some pressure on you as well? So what you're identifying is the challenges of being a realist, <laughs> which is, you know, if safety is your priority, if safety is a core value of what you want to see, but all you're hearing is we don't have the money to do X, Y, Z, then part of the challenge, which I think we ended up balancing just right, is how to uh, be an enforcer where needed. You can't lie. You can't cheat. You can't misrepresent. And if you do, there are penalties for that. And at the same time, um, be willing to collaborate and cooperate and find ways. So, I mean, we had, uh, as an example, first ever meeting where we brought in car makers, lobbyists, uh, congressional people, etc., and said, so how do we redo the recall system? It's not working. You know, so what, how, what are the new ideas that we can actually bring in? Another year, we actually had meetings all over the country saying, you know, how do we go after the behavior part? You know, the distractions and the speeding and the drunk driving. Some of these have been around forever. Some like distraction are getting worse. Devices. Yeah, exactly. You know, what can we learn from other areas and apply to this and do it differently? So I would say you've just highlighted what is the big what was the biggest challenge, I think, remains that, which is how do you make sure that you enforce and really foundationally put safety in place, but do it in the context of what the reality of society and these companies are pursuing at that moment? Right. So the last section of this podcast, Mark, I'd like to talk about is is now Mark the Startupper. So you are the chief innovation and safety officer, and you are right up there with now the gurus in autonomous driving, where you don't need to worry about sleep anymore. <laughs> Tell us what your latest venture is and, and where you're sitting in there. So part of my enthusiasm for autonomous vehicles is at NHTSA, one, I made sure everybody knew exactly how many lives were lost in any particular year. So. In 2017, the last year we have full data for the United States, 37,133 lives lost on our roadways. And that's 2.4 million people injured and 6.3 million crashes. And it's a data. We know 94% of crashes are related to the human, a choice or error that we make. And so if you just think about eliminating the speeding, the drunk driving, the distracted, etc., that's potentially 94% of crashes. Out of 6.3 million, we're talking about eliminating 5.9 million crashes if we get rid of that. Hence my enthusiasm for automating vehicles. 
So how do we take autonomous vehicles and use those as an opportunity for us to try and eliminate drunk driving, speeding, distraction, et cetera? So many lives and injuries for us um, to be able to save. And so that's why, again, going from a big national policy arena, it's been fascinating to be in a Silicon Valley starting and building the next generation of our mobility system. And that's been absolutely tremendous. And just the last two things I'll mention is it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. We have incredible technology happening now, but a real transition to see the lives saved, et cetera, is going to take two to three decades at least. And I think we have to keep safety at the foundation of all of that, not just in the saving the lives, but realize anytime you have new technology, it will introduce new risks into the system as well. And so we have to find ways to make sure that we are, again, keeping that balance. Um, but the opportunity is so great as a society, we can't afford not to do this. So. Uh, amongst your partners you're going to need to help this happen are the other players because let's say it's going to take you a while to finally manufacture an autonomous car and 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 service it and and run it in the meantime you've got others who are doing semi-autonomous stage three or stage four eventually i presume you're sort of aiming at stage five type of car fully 100% 100% autonomous, uh, don't, doesn't need oversight, as I would characterize the autonomous car that you're looking at. But in the meantime, you've got, you know, sometimes more or less ethically run autonomous cars, and, and they're going to be creating the narrative and, and paving ways with governments and cities in, in the introduction of them, whether it's buses, lorries, trucks, or cars. So, do you have to feel like you need to participate with them in that? And how does that going to work out? Because it surely will have an impact on you. Absolutely. And there's a fascinating dance going on within the industry is searching out where the collaborations are going to be critical. And and part of that is uh, at NHTSA, there, we put out the first federal automated vehicle policy, which is sort of a foundation for the stuff that's going on now. Um, but to your point, what's interesting is there are needs for questions of common terminology. How do we share safety data? Are there certain kinds of testing that everybody should be looking at? What should new safety metrics look like? What should reporting? There's so many different things. Uh, And nobody really knows what's right now. There's so much innovation going on. And so there are companies getting together along with, you know, governments and regulations. And this is at the federal, state and local level with cities, Mm -hmm. basically trying to figure out how do we make sure that these are implemented to the benefit of society in a safe way, in ways that are going to really help us you know, achieve all the benefits and minimize any kind of risks that are involved? Um, but it's a very dynamic environment. And so one, just I'll give you one example is uh, we're now part of a group called PAVE, Partners for AV Education. Because if there's one thing everybody agrees about is people need to get educated about what you just did. So we're level four, level five. What's that? compared to level three, et cetera, what's already in vehicles now with all the support systems, et cetera. And so PAVE is really focused on educating consumers and media and policymakers about what this future could look like. Well, for you, having been at NHTSA, where you were, let's say, an important part of every autonomous car maker's lives, because you kind of knew everything at that level. And so you know Washington, and you're living in, in San Francisco, dealing with California, and I think of the cannabis industry in this particular case, where you have federal, you, you know the federal rule, routes, 
but would you say that there's a better opportunity to work with California and try to avoid the federal, you know, the slow morass of bureaucracy in Washington, that even if you were part of it, that's the way it is. So how, do you, how are you trying to navigate that? Would you, I mean, without giving away, you know, state secrets, so to speak, but is, is, is it something that you feel you should be working on San Francisco mostly or Nevada, where a lot of stuff is happening, Pittsburgh or or city statewide, or do you feel you need to be part of the federal thing as well? You really need to do it at all levels. So that means federal, state, and city. And to your point, the federal takes a long time. Everything that I signed into law was literally in that legislative pipeline for eight to 10 years. So if you start you know, the federal regulatory process now, by the time it becomes law and it's regulation, anything you're trying to deal with is obsolete, right? And eight or 10 years from now, the technology is changing so quickly. So um, that's why right now the feds have laid out, you know, a foundation for that. And then looking to see where regulation coming in the future needs to be at the state level. You have a lot of differences, places like California that have a lot of structures in place, others that are watching to see what they need, others that are trying to figure out how do we support this, but at the same time, protect people as well from a safety perspective and the cities i think which i always like to point out that's where rubber actually meets the road and they they are really just i think struggling in a good way to figure out how do we take full advantage of this you know because that's the other thing when you say autonomous vehicles you're not just talking about moving you and me around we're talking about packages the first and last mile for public transport you know there's just so many opportunities here especially when you start thinking about elderly that may be giving up their keys to their cars Uh, The disability community, there are so many opportunities here. We really need to figure out how to optimize those benefits. And again, the cities are where the rubber is going to meet the road. And I think you need all three of those, the federal level, the state, as well as the city. And if you can get them coordinated, even better to make sure that we don't put up barriers, but rather make sure there's a safety foundation, but we're going to get maximum benefits. So you, you were telling me before we started recording that you've managed to get some funding uh, you obviously are in this for the long haul because it's going to be a while before all cars are autonomous. In the meantime, I'm sure you've got imagining a hybrid version where there's part typical cars and part autonomous level four or five cars. What's the timeline look like and, and how optimistic can we be that uh, I as a hopefully grandfather octogenarian will be able to be driven around by my um, bi-directional uh, car that you guys are developing? A great question, and let's do the generic one first. As administrator, people said, when is this stuff coming? And the reality is there is technology already in our cars that's already on the road, blind spot monitors, adaptive cruise control, lane keeping. I mean, there's just so much technology Um, that's already in our vehicles, that this is already coming. Uh, What's interesting is at Zooks, uh, we have a plan that by the end of 2020, um, we'll have a vehicle able to function without a driver, level four, level five, without a driver, without operating controls by the end of 2020. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be on your app and that you'll be able to call it because that will take, you know, a couple years beyond that. But 21, 22, we'll start seeing that. So I think relatively soon we'll start seeing it but to the point where you're going to go to the corner pull out your phone and on the app is you know wherever you are in the world that's 20 to 30 years away easily Mm -hmm. so i think we have to realize there's a lot of great advancement going on but for it to be commonplace in our cities 
um, and you know across the world, we're looking at two or three decades at least. So, I mean, you know, knowing as much as I know about artificial intelligence, the the challenges are, are so many because you you know the human lives and and all the safety issues. But you, if you, I presume you you must be thinking in, as you roll it out, pilot. And pilot in a city where the street markings and the street signs are functional and, and consistently so. Because there are some cities where there are potholes and you can't see anything and lights are on and off. And, and that would just, I mean, maybe that's a good test, but, you know, for the robustness of it. But in order to get this to work, you must be thinking of some kind of pilots where you can, you know, give the best chance of success, even though it's maybe, let's say, the easiest version. So what's interesting about what you're talking about is that people do take different approaches to their development. So at Zooks, we're actually testing in San Francisco. And we do that because it means we're doing uh, an incredibly challenging, dynamic geographic environment. Indeed. And it basically, well, and it gets to our philosophy, which is if you can drive there, <laughs> then you can drive almost anywhere. You know, day, night, rain, heavy rain. We don't do ice and snow. But we can do Lombard Street and we can do the dynamics of unprotected left turns with five, you know, a five way intersection, six way intersection. And that if you can do that, then you can or a retirement community or a theme park. And that will be much more straightforward. Yeah, sure. And so, yeah. It, but but your point, why it's so important is people have different philosophies. Some people will take the pilot approach and say, let's let's go one, two, three, four and work that way. We're saying let's go all the way to level four and five and pick very difficult environments because if we can work it out there, then applying it to others will be other environments will be much easier. But I think you also have to realize and make sure people understand you don't just launch in San Francisco. You have to do laboratory work, simulation work, close track work, non-public roads, eventually moving to public roads. So any responsible company is going to have a process and procedure to go through before they ever put anything on a public road. And even now, the stuff we're testing in San Francisco, they're in vehicles that are still level three. So we have two people in the front seat, a safety driver and someone else, more eyes and ears, right, to help make sure safety is, is the ultimate there when you're doing that kind of testing. And, and coming back to my reference about cannabis, uh, uh, you, you, you clearly are going to need certification. And oftentimes, the government is a little bit behind the eight ball. To, so to speak, in terms of knowing how to how to regulate AI, how to how to regulate things which have never been done before, and and they rely on you to give you the intel, give them the intel to understand what we should be regulating, and then so ethics come into play. How how much do you have to work with the regulators in in, in teaching them to help create the right rules for you to be correct correctly coded? That's going to be the ultimate good for all of us, which is a an opportunity for both regulators having been in that chair and developers and the community that's going to get the benefits, all of us in society, to make sure that we're actually working together to make this happen. And I say that because my personal model is that we need innovation. We have to let that drive data-driven best practices, which will eventually lead to regulation. Because as administrator, people would say, so let's get the laws in place. What would they be? You know, right. we just don't know what that is yet. And if you constrained it, then you'd be constraining the innovation. Who knows what you're giving up by putting it in a box at this point? So we really need the innovation. 
I think we need I'm a big, big proponent of sharing safety data because I think we should get data-driven best practices. We don't know what's going to be the best sensor rate. How many samples do you take? You know, all these other things that need to be figured out. Um, and you're seeing that played out with different sort of philosophies about what sensors you need and how you can do it. Nobody knows. But the data should drive what we think is safe and what really works. And eventually that will lay the foundation for future regulation. So what you just described is what we need. We have to have, you know, federal, state, city as regulators, as well as developers and community, the consumers really working together. This is a classic situation. If we do that, maximum benefit. If we don't, we're going to lose the opportunity about saving lives. It's a trifecta. We're talking safety, mobility, and sustainability. Mm-hmm. Any one of those is worth pursuing. But the autonomous vehicle opportunity is all three. So that is more significant than we've seen really in anything for a long, long time. Well, you've always struck me as a, a mission-led individual, Mark. Um, and, and, and But I mean mission, missionary-led. Um, last question. You, you're, you're head of innovation and safety at Zooks. The way I read that, of course, is you're also head of ethics somehow. Mm-hmm. Tell me I'm wrong. And, and what is, you know, you talk about your principles, the, the, the notion of ethics within the, the, the concept of autonomous cars and the various choices that you have to make when you code the artificial intelligence on certain decisions that need to be made in certain situations. How is that going for you? And, and how much is ethics part of your daily you know, work? And it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about that because my title, Chief Safety Innovation Officer, to talk about this as administrator, people think you can have safety or you can have innovation. You can have one or the other. And I used to point out, no, it really is going to take both of those together, safety innovation for us, to really see the advancements, the potential that we have ahead of us. And so that's why we created that, you know, what title do you want, Mark? Here you go. And that's why we created that. And it really emphasizes how the innovations in the safety arena are as critical as the technology and AI innovations that we're working on as well. And what's so interesting is very few, so credit to you, acknowledge that when you talk safety and innovation together, they're very much about what are your core principles? What are your first principles? What are the ethics of what you're doing? And that's why there's a lot of us in safety that continually point out safety has to be a core value. It has to be foundational. And that's where you're making decisions. So everyone who says it's our number one priority, priorities change Mm -hmm. based on economics and all kinds of other stuff. It's like you got to bake this in. So that's been one of the exciting things about being in a startup is we are literally creating a proactive safety culture where safety is foundational to everything we do. Where clearly, though we don't call it ethics all the time, we may be putting it in a a safety bin, but clearly that's where you're making decisions. If you do this, it could put people at risk. If you do this, we're going to, you know, save more lives, prevent more crashes. So when you have a first principle of don't hit things as a basic, it's kind of like when you start applying that to how much redundancy do you need? Mm-hmm. How solid does your code have to be? Mm-hmm. You know, how many times does it have to pass that test? Well, if that's a first principle, that kind of sets the foundation for how you have to, you know, think about what the future is for your vehicle. So I, I'd actually think while we don't call it ethics, safety has become, you know, the, the thing trying to create. And it's exciting to do that at a place, again, that's brand new. It's also exciting with a lot of uh, young engineers, you know, who uh, they're 20 something and maybe 30 something for the managers, you know, 
Um, and so I think it's just a great opportunity. And, and I'll just say uh, the CEO and the CTO, Aisha Evans, who's a CEO, just joined us recently. And, and Jesse Levinson, who's uh, the chief technology officer, who's just a brilliant guy. The two of them, it's in their genes. And, th- and that's great for me because it means safety is never an argument. You know, it's, it's more about how do we do it? You know, and that's the philosophy you need. Yeah. Um, building a company gives you a chance to do that from the very beginning. Mark, thank you for coming on, sharing all this, sharing your passion. How can uh, people find out more about Zooks, uh, find out how they can participate in funding, if, if that was something that, that would be of interest? And anyway, find out more about you, Mark Rosekind. What would be the best way to connect with you? Uh, Zooks.com, Z-O-O-X dot C-O-M. Uh, that's our website. Uh, we're just emerging out of stealth mode, so there hasn't been much on that website for a long time. Uh, it does post jobs. Um, it's also got some really, pardon me, super cool videos, you know, that can show you us driving in San Francisco and things like that. So it's got contact information there. People can learn about the company and, and find me as well. Great. Thanks a lot, Mark. Great to have you on the show. It's been loads of fun. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.